Welcome back to Hone In with me, Saad Alam. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Anastasia Jandes, a doctor at the forefront of functional medicine whose practice focuses on treating the root cause of disease. Today, we're going to dig deep into health issues facing veterans after leaving service, especially as it relates to hormone imbalances. Vets face issues like chronic stress, lack of sleep, and inflammation that can impact testosterone. But this show isn't just for those who've served on the front lines. Stress, sleep problems, and inflammation are universal challenges that impact all of us. This episode promises insights that might just reshape your perspective on wellness. Let's hone in. Welcome to Hone In with me, Saad Alam. This is a podcast that goes deep into topics that help you live longer and smarter. Each week, we'll deliver science-backed advice from the world's leading experts in nutrition, health, technology, fitness, relationships, and mindset. We cut through the BS to get you real answers and solutions. So let's hone in. Dr. Jandis, we are so excited to have you here today, not only because you're a honed physician, but because you have done an unbelievable job with all of our men. And so what I'd love to even get started about is, why did a woman get into male's hormone health and why is it so important to you? What a good question. My husband asked me the same thing the other day. No, I, I think I started being interested in hormones through a functional medicine lens because so much of our environmental exposures and the things that we do that create inflammation in the body in modern, stressful, post-COVID, chemical-laden world affect hormones. And so I was interested in hormones as one of the main reasons I did secondary training in functional medicine. But I particularly got interested in men's health and men's hormones because of my experience through training at the VA with veterans. And so I, I trained at a hospital that had a veterans administration hospital attached to it. So I began to kind of be interested in how things that affected stress and hormone production affected men's hormones in relationship to trauma through the VA at work. And I did a lot of behavioral health work as well. And so I had a lot of vets with PTSD mm -hmm. and I noticed that they also had low testosterone. And so Hone became an avenue for me to explore that a little bit further and kind of do my own version of um, extended care for men's health. Well, I'll tell you that I also sit on the board of one of the largest military communities in the country and PTSD, low testosterone, mental health, huge mm -hmm. problems that our government is really not paying a ton of attention yes. to. There's one thing I wanted to circle back though, is you said that you you really like functional medicine. Mm -hmm. What is functional medicine? Great question, because we throw that word around and I don't think half of the people in medicine have any clue what it is. So in my um, view, it's the extremes of preventative medicine. So you can do preventative medicine training, but this is more of a formulaic approach to prevention of particular diseases and particular exposures. Functional medicine takes it up a step upstream. So they call preventative medicine in terms of functional medicine upstream medicine. So if you imagine a downstream effect from a problem may create a disease that's given a name and given a title, but how did it get there? So unless you're looking at disease in terms of genetics and fully penetrant genes that are there at birth, a genetic birth defect, type 1 diabetes, these sorts of things that were already there genetically, that's irrespective of upstream approach. But upstream approach would be how do you become a type 2 diabetic? How do the stressors and things that you're exposed to in your life create epigenetic changes and changes within the body 
with inflammation, you'll hear me say that a lot. People get tired of me saying inflammation because it's such a big player, but that is functional medicine. How do all of these exposures change our risks to turn disease genes on that may be dormant or create disease within the body? So in my mind, giving a disease a name and giving it a drug, that's a very limited Western world approach that makes companies a lot of money creates doctors like me. And I am a traditionally trained um, physician and pharmacologist as well, but I do find the true crux of help comes from understanding how people go from A to B. Yeah. And somewhere along the way, if we can catch them midway and bring them back to the starting point of dysfunction, that creates health. And you're not just stuck in a lifetime of pharmacology. And you know, the average patient, when I did my PharmD training, my average patient over the age of 50 had about 12 prescriptions. And those 12 prescriptions all interacted, and then a prescription caused an interaction or a problem, so you had to take another med. And then before you know it, you're on all these meds, and no prevention and actual healing has happened. So to me, functional medicine is about that. You know, I saw my father go through like this horrible set of chronic diseases. Started off with type 2 diabetes, became type 1, became kidney disease, mm -hmm. became strokes. And the one thing that the physicians did is he'd go see a new specialist, mm -hmm. new medication, new medication, new mm -hmm. medication. When he passed, he was on 24 medications. And I, I think when I, when I reflect back on the things we could have done to make him better, mm -hmm. it would have been stripping medications away mm -hmm. and fixing it with simple things like better sleep, better mm -hmm. diet, more movement. Yeah. And I think that's what the world doesn't necessarily realize is that the solution isn't just throwing medications right. at people. It is teaching them how to be self-sufficient and take care of their health. Right. And I'm afraid that in this climate, we are becoming so disenfranchised. The medical system is becoming so separate from the general public. And the distrust and mistrust of the medical system is growing. And it's not just in the post-COVID crisis world, but it's through these simple approaches. People read about and are educated about all of the importance of lifestyle change, diet change, nutrition change, supplement use. And you go to the doctor's office, whether it be, you know, your nurse practitioner you might see for primary, or you're seeing a specialist that's an MD or a DO, and how many of them will even bring such things up? And they're powerful things. And so that creates a mistrust. You know, physicians used to be in the top three most trusted professionals, and we are no longer there. And I believe it's because we're missing this portion of things in our training and in our approach. Well, they say, and I don't know if this is accurate, but they say the half-life of medical education is eight months, right? They literally, <laughs> hold on, that, that's a crazy concept that to get your mind around. That is a crazy concept. Right? Eight months after you spend seven, eight, mm -hmm. nine years getting your degree, mm -hmm. half of the information you learn mm -hmm. is obsolete. And I think it's a large part of the fact that the medical education or curriculum hasn't caught up with a lot of what's actually happening in the mm -hmm. world. And I also think the more difficult thing is that a lot of physicians don't take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to preach mm -hmm. when you may be 60, 70 pounds overweight yourself. Maybe you're smoking. I know mm -hmm. I've talked to doctors and I can smell the nicotine coming off mm. them. I think all those things make it difficult for the public to say, hey, are you really giving me the right advice? Yeah, it's true. And I think looking at your physician who's stressed and overworked and has a lot of the factors we're going to talk about today involved in their own lives and the training process you know talking we're going to talk some about the military today and i i 
would ask the veterans watching to forgive me for making a comparison that um, nothing can be as hard as military training. But there are many things within the process of training for physicians that's much like the military. It's a hierarchy. It's a process of stripping things away to teach you things. It's a way of life. The residency process, at least in my day and age of training, was grueling with very little work regulation. And so 80-hour work weeks were the norm. And so physicians began this kind of... Um, process of inflammation and of their own illness through their training because it's much like the military in certain ways. And so you've developed all the all the bottom and kind of base work for developing your own diseases and your own problems. And so it's hard to be the person who's fit and healthy when you work all the time oh and you're stressed. God. That is like one of the most insightful comments I've heard, right? Because all physicians are so incredibly well-intentioned. And I think, I think so. we want to look at them like superheroes. And the reality is like, They've got their own things they're mm -hmm. dealing with. They've got their lives. We're pushing them even harder. And the medical and system's thing. falling apart too. Absolutely. So Absolutely. It's a hard, it's a really hard thing. But I think that reforming medical education to make it less stressful, to make it more doable, to make it more approachable, and to include diet, nutrition, lifestyle changes, functional medicine concepts mm -hmm. in the training, the newer physicians will not have to work as hard as I did to get some of this knowledge. I mean, I had to do two doctorates and then go and do secondary training on my own to get to the point where I still believe I have so much to learn. So it's really difficult to imagine if you weren't ingraining these sorts of things in the training, how do people that are already tapped out get that training? And so much of the knowledge that physicians have is driven by pharmaceutical yes. industry. And so the industries not only contribute to the medical education process, but the literature is pharmaceutically driven with the randomized controlled trial, which does not fit the majority of lifestyle intervention outcomes. And so a lot of what we do is off the mark. You know what? I couldn't agree more with that. And I know I'm going to bring it back in a second, but I, I used to run market research and business development for a $4 billion pharma brand. And the amount of money that we threw at continuing medical, medical education to make sure it was in line with the medication we wanted to sell. Case in point. I mean, it was. It's mind boggling. You get the best thought leaders, you pay them top dollar, mm -hmm. you get everyone in a room, you feed them fat, and mm -hmm. you just give them your information because mm -hmm. it's what we want them to know. And the reality is there's all this other stuff that has nothing to do with the medication that you're even selling. That yeah. the reality is if you just taught patients how to do that, they'd be far better off. Absolutely. Okay, so let's get back to the VA. Let's do it. How big is this problem? It's systemic. I mean, it's that's big. a pretty big statement. It's systemic. It's systemic. So, you know, we're talking about a government organization in a, in a government that is in ultimate turmoil, has been for years, but worse than it's been in a long time. And so funding for the VA, health rights and protections for our veterans, when they're an active asset, Combat gear has never been better. Acute medical and trauma care has never been better. When they're no longer an active asset, the money's not there. Hmm. And so I hate to use the word expendable, but sometimes that's how I feel in terms of medical care that's offered, that these people have become expendable somehow. And so the, the real problem would be keeping someone alive in service, and that is dealt with fairly well. But more people are alive longer and survive traumatic combat situations more. So there's more disability, more illness, more chronic disease. And people live longer now. We take overall better care of people's health. So more people living longer with more trauma, with more disability, and less and less available funding put towards that long-term care. The way that you describe it, an active asset, 
expendability. I mean, those make it feel like we very much are cogs in the wheel of this military machine. And once they leave, they're no longer taken care of nor cared for. Is that like a true statement? Am I overstepping when I say Um, that? I think that that is not an overstep. No, I think it's a sad reality that you see when you work at the VA and when you see veterans out in the private sector, as I do many, many times a day now in my care of veterans with testosterone issues. And they all say the same thing. I would go to the VA, but they won't help. I would go to the VA, but it's not service connected. Um, I had to save money in order to do this. I don't have private insurance, but I have to go through a private process to get the care I need because I don't have another avenue. Why Why do you think veterans suffer disproportionately from a lot of these problems like mental health issues, like hormone imbalances? Well, the human body and brain are not meant to go through what these people have been through. So we are not meant to adapt and live under chronic fight or flight and chronic stress. The things that they've seen and survived and the training itself, which leaves them entrained in fight or flight mode, entrained in sleeping four or five hours a night, entrained in withstanding and keeping their wits about them in in situations the average person wouldn't even be able to function. They have had to wall off portions of their humanity and they live in chronic stress and chronic inflammation. And some of them also have physical issues and disabilities from injury. So it puts them in a situation where it's almost impossible to be well. I mean, you imagine you going from a very normal air conditioned life where you're sleeping whenever you want, eating whenever you want, Mm -hmm. not had a tremendous amount of structure to all of a sudden going into the military, Mm -hmm. being incredibly structured, pushing yourself harder than you've ever been pushed and then being thrown in a war-torn zone where now you are constantly thinking about, am I gonna survive? Mm -hmm. Do I need to actually pull the trigger, Mm -hmm. right? Those are scary things. Absolutely, and we are, we've gotten pretty soft in the Western world. You know, Even people that don't have every luxury still have basic needs met. And so we don't live in a way that this wouldn't be anything but going into the deep end, into shock mode. So the dichotomy matters. So, so tell me a little bit about what happens when someone goes into active service. Mm. What are the, almost like walk me through, I walk into to training the first day, what are the things that my body starts to go through and why does that actually compound gotcha. over time? So I think the immediate thing is people have to go through basic training and the whole idea with field training and basic training is stripping away things that don't serve as a tool or a weapon. and instilling things that do. So it's an automatically stressful hierarchical situation with drill sergeants yelling at you, you're in stress, you've been an autonomous human living in a relatively cared for situation in most cases to all of a sudden, all those things are stripped away. So you're automatically in fight or flight. You're automatically with cortisol levels going up. You're automatically in a mode of fear and combat, even if you're not yet in field training. Then going into field training as, a statistic points out that field training itself drops T by almost 50%. And that fight or flight scenario, the real world scenarios that soldiers go through begin to create this fight or flight mode that stays entrained within the body. So that kind of stops a lot of the body's natural production of rest and digest physiology. So our gut likes rest and digest. That's how we digest our proteins and foods. Our endocrine loves rest and digest. That's how we make and signal hormones throughout the body. So they're already, even from the beginning, becoming more and more susceptible to chronic disease and problems, particularly mental health, um, because the body, the brain, and the mind-body complex aren't meant to withstand these things, especially in the long term. So it'd be one 
one thing if a soldier had a discrete training, a small deployment, maybe not any trauma, and then could go back to regular living under a year. But most soldiers become career soldiers or at least have a tour or term they have to serve that's more than that. And so is it, let's say I went on a four, six year tour. Mm -hmm. Is it a true statement that once I get put into that fight or flight mode, as you used the word, it entrains me and mm -hmm. I'm stuck there to a certain degree? If you have to maintain it, yes. And then there's a threshold that each person has that's individually developed that it's hard for them to become unentrained. So, you know, you eat the same thing every day for 10 years, you're going to think that's what you want to eat and your body becomes used to it. Your body becomes stuck in those modes. And so body and mind get stuck in soldier mode. And when they come home, they're dropped out into the world, expected to adjust without much help. And, you know, there, I know there's great research right now out of Walter Reed to look at ways to identify early who needs help and what methods would help the most. But generally speaking, it's like being institutionalized your whole life and then stepping out and having to learn how to function again with people that are worried about social media and they're worried about how their hair looks and they're worried about how people might perceive them and they're, they feel very alienated. And so you're saying there's both a biological or physiological response that their body is stuck in a fight or flight mm -hmm. mode on top of the fact that mentally they haven't been in the same headspace for mm -hmm. year, six years, 10 yeah. years, like you were saying certain times. Yeah. So it's almost like re-entering society to a mm -hmm. certain degree. Absolutely. Help me understand, you know, once you start going into fight or flight and you're stuck there for six mm -hmm. years, what does that mean for you? What does that do to your body? Well, first thing that starts to happen is the adrenals can't keep up with the cortisol release. And cortisol is catabolic. So it helps you break down all sources of fuel in a fight or flight situation so that you have plenty of glucose to go to the muscles and plenty of food and fuel to fuel the action. The body can't sustain that for very long. And so cortisol curves begin to flatten and you start to notice a change in hyperacuity and arousal in patients because they're they're kind of becoming more jumpy. Their startle reflexes up. Their eyes are a little bit wider and they're starting to get stuck in that mode when the cortisol curve starts flattening. And then cortisol has a lot of relationships with all other hormones as all things that work from the brain and body do in the endocrine system. And so the downstream effects becomes endocrine disruption across the board in a lot of cases based on this inflammation and this stuckness, so to speak, in fight or flight. And it takes a lot of behavioral therapy techniques to unpeel that onion, as well as physiological techniques, things like learning how to reactivate the vagus to calm things down, because the fight or flight mechanism is a bit op opposite from what the vagus nerve would do. And so vagal um, building and vagal tone increase would help. And these, these people, unfortunately, don't get any of that help along the way. Like, wouldn't it be great if in the military, there were some training exercises to create vagal tone improvements and being able to pull yourself out of fight or flight when you're not actively in combat. But those things are usually reserved for private functioning institutions that veterans would seek out once they're home versus training through the process as they go. Well, let's be realistic. Like we don't even do a good job teaching ourselves that Correct. really. And so to expect our, our, our soldiers to do mm -hmm. that, that's a really difficult ask. Mm -hmm. A couple of things that I want to make sure we understand and almost kind of like describe to us in like the simplest terms. When you talk about vagal relaxation, mm -hmm. what does that mean? 
So the vagus is just a big nerve. It's called the traveler. That's It's Latin for the traveler. It travels all over the body. Mm-hmm. And a really nice attachment point for the vagus to be activated is in the gut. So it controls a lot of the rest and digest processes of the body and technically can override at any point adrenaline and fight or flight, norepinephrine in the brain, epinephrine secretion in the body. And so we want the vagus to be um, always as active as it can be. And simple things like deep breathing from the belly where mm-hmm. the diaphragm moves versus the chest can activate the vagal response and calm the body. And so basically what you're saying is the moment you kind of get into this fight or flight system, your vagal response doesn't ever relax for some prolonged period of time. That being said, you just have this, I would say, rush of cortisol that enters your body and stays there for six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years. It can. And then usually the cortisol response is dampened because their adrenals can't keep up. The cortisol curve gets flattened. And as cortisol goes, the entire stress response unfolds. What does that mean? And so cortisol is... is there to help you kind of enact what needs to happen to survive in a stressful situation. If your adrenals become burnout and you can't really make cortisol, your cortisol curve becomes flat, which means morning cortisol starts to go down. All cortisol levels throughout the whole body start to go down. And that's a known stress response. And folks with PTSD have that. So is it that if you've been in a fight or flight position for a prolonged period of time, you can't even produce cortisol as much mm-hmm. as you're Which is a life-saving corticosteroid that the adrenals make in order to help you deal with stress. Got it. Tell me about inflammation. Why do you say you talk about it so much? Why am I hearing everyone talk about it so much? So inflammation is, is in my opinion, the leader of all chronic disease. Mm -hmm. And so it's the enemy or the scourge of the modern time. Inflammation is cytokine production in relationship to stress within the body. And it creates a cascade of events that eventually leads to turning on of chronic disease genes or creation of chronic disease. There's not a chronic disease in medicine I can think of that doesn't have inflammation at its core, coronary artery disease, diabetes, anything. Dementia, dementia, big one, Dementia, absolutely. Alzheimer's Alzheimer's type dementia as well. Um, And so everything is related to this cytokine um, outpouring that happens in inflammation. And inflammation has lots of causes lots of things that we didn't ever think about in the past. So we used to think about simple things like inflammation's caused from infection, inflammation's caused from certain foods and certain our, certainly our diet is inflammatory. But we didn't think about it until recently how much the mind and body work together to create problems and benefits. And so stress within the mind creates inflammatory reaction within the body, inflammatory cytokine production. So just the very mental stress that we all live in every day. We have this fight or flight system and it, we evolutionarily developed it to survive events like running from the tiger or running from the flood. And now we have it all day long. Like, oh, am I going to get across town to get my kid in time? Mm -hmm. I've got more work to do than I can get done. The financials are poor for the company I'm working for. We have all of this stress that never goes away. So evolutionarily, we would have had the tiger that either chased us or killed us and we either survived or we didn't. And we'd go back to baseline. Mm -hmm. And we don't have that same situation anymore. So so this chronic mental stress is really a problem. And that leads to another factor causing inflammation, which is lack of sleep. Mm -hmm. So we hit the reset button 
at night, the brain cools down, the brain begins to find its own anti-inflammatory mechanisms to heal, to assimilate memories, to store memories, and to heal the body. That's where the GI tract does the majority of its work. That's when we make a lot of our hormones, including testosterone. And so being anti-inflammatory means you have to get enough sleep. And having stress interrupts the sleep. Having PTSD interrupts the sleep. And so all of it leads to more inflammation. And it's like the hamster on the wheel, kind of feed forward. So it's almost like the moment you become a soldier, you're in basic training, you're not sleeping the way you used to. Right. Then on top of it too, your cortisol levels are initially increased. Mm -hmm. They, although you're in that prolonged period of fight or flight, so it never comes mm -hmm. down until you're completely burnt out. Yeah. And then on top of it, to make it worse, you are always being put into a place where you don't have certainty about what's gonna happen Correct. next in your life. And that's a big deal, not knowing, especially with the way that modern warfare is conducted. You know, beginning with the Vietnam War, it became unknown. It wasn't troops marching against troops and storming battlefields and storming the beaches. It's guerrilla warfare. You don't know who the enemy is. You don't know the next minute if a child is going to pull a gun or if there's going to be a roadside bomb. And you don't even know what the enemy might look like in a situation. So the uncertainty every moment, even during sleep, if you're in a deployed situation, there is no relaxation. So it's your body can't even heal itself mm -hmm. during the times it was evolutionary built to heal itself mm -hmm. anymore. Absolutely. And one important part about cortisol is that when it's really high and you're in the most stressful situations, even really stressful exercise situation, it dampens the testosterone response. And testosterone is a natural anti-inflammatory. It's a natural anti-anxiety and it's a natural antidepressant. Mm -hmm. And so for men in particular, that cortisol to testosterone situation is pretty dicey. I read it on PubMed that military field training mm. can decrease testosterone production by up to 47%. Is yeah. that a real number? It's a real number. And it's in a snippet, though, that the big picture is that when they're in the field training directly, the T goes down. Most people do initial field training at the beginning of service experience. Mm -hmm. So they're not they're not in a position yet where they're entrained in the way we've talked about already. And so even if their T does rebound after the field training, Give me those same patients a year or two later after a deployment, combat, combat experience, maybe a TBI, maybe PTSD, maybe the beginnings of service-related depression, all of which affect testosterone as well. So it's not, you're not able to put it in such an isolated fashion to just say that field experience decreases testosterone, which we rebounds at the end of the field experience. But overall, just knowing that field training does that is pretty scary. Is it enough to say that if when soldiers come back, we were to teach them deep breathing exercises, optimize their hormones and tell them how to go to sleep better, that a lot of this gets fixed? Or is it a longer term problem that we don't even know how to, I would say, solve yet? I think it's the latter, but the former is so important. Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't we do those things? Why wouldn't we try? Um, better research, less pharma funded research, research that's more driven towards um, outcomes of particular patients like these soldiers, I think would make a big difference. But all of those things, teaching all of those things when soldiers return home would be nothing but beneficial. And there would, there would be a do no harm approach there. What do you think is holding us back from doing that? Because they're simple things, right? Mm -hmm. Boy, that's a systemic <laughs> question and a big, a big question. I think there are so many things that hold us back. I think that kind of what I touched on earlier is that there is this certain almost expendability that once soldiers are back home, 
they kind of get plugged into the VA care and the VA care isn't set up to do that. It's a really old system. It's an old system with old hospitals and older protocols. And it doesn't mean there aren't super talented providers there and well-intentioned people there. I've never seen people work so hard to help a population, but they're within a system that is out of date and underfunded. Is it as simple as throwing more money at this? No, because often the more money gets channeled down the wrong pathways. And so I think veterans need to be able to be more active in their healing. I think the behavioral health folks need to be more actively involved in finalizing um, kind of the debriefing when soldiers get home. You know, there's I know soldiers want to come home and see their families and go straight home, but having a bigger debriefing area and a better trained staff to do so that's heavy on the behavioral health and functional medicine side of things. You know, to my knowledge, the VA doesn't employ people that have functional medicine training. Do you think though, like right, the one of the things that's really necessary in order to take on behavioral health is you have to be open and willing to step into it, right? Yeah. Like there is an element of it that feels a little bit woo-woo. And mm -hmm. if you've probably been holding an M16 in your hand and throwing gr grenades across the You don't want to bow, talk about your feelings. Yeah, like how mm -hmm. do you get someone to do those things? Yeah, I think having a lot of background education prior, during, and after service to say, this is how disease happens. These are the things you're gonna be at risk for. These are the exposures you're likely to have. And here's what they will do. It's just simply education. Because regardless of the bravado and, and the machismo that happens in the military, and some of it's ingrained, um, some of it's based on the person that chooses that career, but, but much of it can be encountered in a way that I just wanna show you and teach you that this is something that will happen. Here's the physiology of how it happens. I've never met a patient I can't explain these topics to. And when the light bulb goes on, that's when they're able to help themselves get well and demand the care that allows them to be well. What do you think that light bulb is in most people? Um, I know, and I know it's different yeah. for different people, but if you had to say like, these are the top two light bulbs that go off, what do you think they are? I think it's talking about the fact, so this is something that's a big light bulb for my patients is back to the inflammation topic. People don't aren't taught and don't know how much you truly are what you eat and how much sleep truly affects everything. Mm -hmm. So think about it. What can you go the shortest amount of time without, without dying? Water. What's the second thing you can go without for the shortest amount of time and not die? Sleep. It's not food. People can fast for long periods of time and maybe they wouldn't be healthy, but they won't die. Mm -hmm. And so you, you, know, you start losing your mental health very quickly. Um, less than seven to seven and a half hours a night after three or four days, you begin to get confused. Your mood starts to swing. Your inflammation goes up. You're not in the reset mode that sleep brings and the downward cascade of health happens. And so just simply knowing that what you eat matters and what inflammation is, how do you create all of these cytokines that disrupt your body function by food, by ultra-processed food and inflammatory eating, adding artificial sweeteners to things that cause endocrine disruption and what does that mean? And this is not a huge conversation. This is just opening the topic up to realize that what you do in your daily life with what you put in your body and how much you sleep creates disease. I can't imagine a human that wouldn't want to hear that, regardless of your attitude. And the light bulb comes on and you realize that it's not so simple. And I may have been not told these things. I think that the biggest story that's yet to be told is the inflammation story. Mm -hmm. Like I think, and you nailed it before when you said connected to cardiovascular disease, endocrine mm -hmm. disruption, 
dementia. I feel like we're just at the beginning of getting that story out there. But the reality is that it's almost hard to grasp, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's it means it's so many things. It's yeah. so nebulous. It's, and it's everything. It's yeah. the entire body's response to the way that we live now. And here's a really disconcerting idea. This this is worrisome on many levels. Once inflammation has epigenetically triggered genetics that are dormant, you can then pass them on to offspring. Mm-hmm. So imagine, you know, veterans that have come home and began to father children at that point and what they have had created within their body that can then be passed on. And this is a new concept. We didn't used to know things like this were possible. We've just mapped the genome, you know, really recently. Um, We've just learned about epigenetics relatively recently to that. And so it's all a brave new world of medicine. And I think we will look back on how barbarically we've done things in the future, in the very near future. And as you said, medical training is obsolete by the time it's complete. And that doesn't sit well with physicians in particular. And you have to say, I, I'm going to figure out a way to keep up. And by the time a white pup paper is published, um, there are 10 more that might add more to the topic, but it's going to take another 10 years for that yes. information to make it into the training I would receive in medical school. So unless you're dedicating a portion of your career to keeping up and learning these concepts, you're going to be at odds with the truth of the information quickly. I am hopeful, though, because I do. And I'm hopeful because of physicians like you that have basically said it was wonderful what I trained previously and what I learned previously. But the reality is that the world is changing very rapidly Mm -hmm. and I myself want to be healthy. So I'm incorporating a lot of these behaviors into my life. There's something else I want to touch on because it hit a nerve with me. Okay. I eat a lot of Splenda. (laughs) (laughs) More than I probably should. Uh, And that's the way I get around satiating my sweet tooth. You said that artificial sweeteners cause cause endocrine disruptions. Talk to me about that. So endocrine disruption with artificial sweeteners was theoretical and is now much less so. Causes, Causes endocrine disruption. Many of them are mimicking hormones in the body. The majority or many have been shown to be carcinogens as well. So, you know, like the World Health Organization has recently deemed aspartame as one. And so we allow things in the U.S. to be here in our food, in our water, in our agricultural process that other countries don't. Mm -hmm. And if you want to sweeten, use stevia. Use Ugh. pure stevia. You Ugh. use less. You don't like you don't like the flavor of stevia. <laughs> I, I hate no. the flavor. But have you have you gotten the stevia that's just the stevia leaf that doesn't have anything else in it? Because often the blends have other things in there. I've tried too. every kind of stevia. We have stevia that comes to our house on Amazon subscriptions, and it just piles up. And you we just tried won't. everything. I just blend it. it. It's a bad habit of mine. It's gotcha. the one bad habit I'm trying to break. Yeah. Um, but it's like whenever I hear slowly people, but surely work on it. I'm gonna I'm gonna hear you inside of my head. Slowly but surely replace it with some carbonation. You know, think about we do a lot of that. Too. Okay, we do a lot of that too. We got a we got one of those machines that you plug oh, in. Oh, that's good. Uh, God, what's it called? We use it like five like the times Soda a day. Stream thing. Soda Stream. Yeah. It's a Soda Stream, but there's a different one that we use. Okay, it'll come to me. But the other thing I wanted to talk about mm-hmm. too about last time we talked, you talked about endocrine disruptors in general, mm. and they're everywhere right yeah. now, right? And then you also said the fact that they're there, they're causing problems in our mm-hmm. body, and then we are passing them on to our offsprings as well. Why is it that soldiers have a higher probability of encountering these gotcha. out in the real world? That's a good question. So, And soldiers have it whether they're domestically um, situated or they're deployed abroad because bases are places of, of war 
-hmm. Chemicals are involved, radiation's involved. Even certain um, processes within bases in the US have exposures that are above and beyond what a normal job would have. But when deployed, burn pits are involved. When deployed, chemical warfare can be involved. Um, you know, we've all heard the horror stories of Agent Orange, and we've all heard the horror stories of burn pits. But when you think about what a burn pit is, regardless of what's in it, it's a trash pile that's lit by jet fume, by jet fuel. They use jet fuel to as the accelerant. And jet fuel itself is is a poison. You know, this is something that that's an aromatic hydrocarbon that eventually leads to DNA damage and lack of repair. So that in of itself is a toxin. And soldiers have so many of these endocrine disrupting toxins and exposures um, through breathing in the fumes. And a lot of the exposures are topical, things that they've had to touch or be exposed to through the skin or inhaled and they bypass the body's natural detox through the gut. So the first pass mechanism that takes things through the gut, through the liver, is a big part of our detox, is how the things from the outside of the body come in and are broken down into more hydrophilic particles that are less toxic that can be urinated or excreted in the stool or sweated out. And most of soldier exposures are through things they've had to breathe in or touch. And so all of that is avoided. And so the detox that could have happened, which easily gets overwhelmed, the body's ability to detox through glutathione production, which is limited, the major antioxidant of the body. Um, I'm a big fan of glutathione support for soldiers. For anybody that's been exposed, I use either N-acetylcysteine to build oral glutathione up or glutathione injections, which Hone offers now, which is awesome. But all of the detox mechanisms can only work if they're allowed to work. And so exposures often bypass those detox mechanisms. So not only are more chemicals there that they're exposed to, they're exposed in routes that they don't have a prayer to detox from. Oh my God. So it's it's almost like they're going somewhere, signing their life away to a certain extent, and they don't even know the extent right. of what's actually happening. It's not a bullet that you just have to worry mm -hmm. about. It's the fact It's that not the bullet, right? If you can survive the bullet, then you have all these other things that are unseen. Hmm. And microbes, you know, we used to worry more about that um, with soldiers, but we do a really good job with that acute care side of medicine, but it's the exposures, the unseen things that, uh, unfortunately, the approach is safe until proven guilty, safe until proven harmful. Well, I think the thing that you're really impressing upon me, it's we're really good with, if someone has a bullet in them or mm -hmm. if they were bleeding profusely, any kind of acute problems, we probably know. We probably Because well. you see them with your eyes. Mm -hmm. But it's all the other things that compound over time that don't necessarily mm -hmm. hit you for 10 years or some period of time until you're out. Mm -hmm. That's what we got to do a better job with. Yes. And you can't discreetly study these things, these environmental uh, exposures, these toxins that end up in the body through food and other mechanisms. How do you study those with our favorite way to study things, which is the randomized, clinical-controlled, double-blind, placebo-driven trial? And we can't study those things that way. So therefore, they aren't real. Therefore, they don't cause problems. So we, we have to find a better way. Talk to me a little bit about, too, that when soldiers have their hormones imbalanced mm -hmm. uh, from all these environmental exposures, the environment, just I wouldn't say that the place that they're in, mm -hmm. how, how does that cause mental health problems? So traumatic brain injury is part of this PTSD service-related depression, all of these things that happen because the human mind and body are not able to heal and conceptualize, um, heal from and conceptualize what they've seen and been through. All of those things eventually lead to hormone disruption. 
in particular estrogen and testosterone change. So as stress goes up, we know stress causes inflammation. We've talked about that already. And as inflammation goes up for men in terms of testosterone, not only do testosterone receptors downregulate in the hippocampus as well as do estrogen receptors, but men convert more T to E as a neuroprotection in brain damage from TBI because of all the inflammation in the brain, the estrogen supports the astroglia in the brain. And then inflammation also causes aromatization in the body. So not only are you being exposed to endocrine um, disrupting chemicals that are often xenoestrogens, yes. so they're, they're you know chemicals that look like estrogen that cause the disruption, but you're also in an inflammatory state where aromatization where T is making E because in men, estrogen, estradiol is made from testosterone in the majority of the cases. And so you're making more estradiol because of this inflammatory push for this particular enzyme, which matters quite a bit. And it causes the loss of T, which is one of our protectors for men. It's a great protector in terms of mental health and inflammation. So I was at a wedding two weekends ago with a physician that does research. And when I told him that these endocrine disruptors resemble estrogenic compounds, he said, that doesn't make any sense. I said, no, they, they literally resemble estrogen. They get into your body, they fight for space on all of your receptors. Mm -hmm. And if you flood your body with them, that tells your hypothalamus that you have too much estrogen, tells your pituitary to stop luteinizing hormone production. And all mm -hmm. of a sudden your testes are not producing testosterone mm -hmm. anymore. And he says, it doesn't make sense to me. I said, listen, I know it sounds crazy and conspiratorial, but it's happening it's and it's true. happening across not just mm -hmm. the country, but the world. The thing you said, which just blew my mind, was the fact that when you're under stress, the aromatization or the conversion of testosterone to estrogen is mm -hmm. actually accelerated. So it, it means is. you're even throwing more estrogen into your body. Yeah. And now listen, estrogen is good in the right amounts for men, right? Absolutely. It's neuroprotective, Absolutely. it helps us with our bone density. But sexual health metabolism, you have yes. to have it, but it's a narrow band hormone for men. Yep. T is not a narrow band hormone for men. We need the T for many reasons in mm -hmm. men, but men need estrogen and the balance of T to E to be just right. And the balance of T to E is a smaller percentage of E in, in relationship to testosterone, which is different for women. But in men, that, that ratio is more important in my practice than almost anything else. I'm going to ask another question, which you may or may not know the answer to. I don't sure. know if anyone does. So I understand, right? If you have traumatic brain injury, if you're constantly under the threat of a bullet flying by mm -hmm. you or you dying at night, that's going to cause like some kind of PTSD to a certain degree, yep. right? Yep. Does a hormone imbalance, whether it's less testosterone or more estrogen, accelerate that or or accelerate even the outcomes of of endocrine or mental health? Oh, that's a good question. Well, I think, I think theoretically speaking, yes. So we'll go through a little bit of the pathophysiology. So TBI, that literature hasn't panned out whether TBI causes low T or not. But in terms of pathophysiology, which is kind of how we have to do these iterations in our minds as functional medicine providers and as researchers, because the research, as we've said before, is almost impossible to do um, in the scenarios and in a direct one-to-one -one relationship because there's so many factors. So TBI causes obviously brain jarring and brain trauma. PTSD is related to TBI and so is major depression, which is related to PTSD. So all of those lower T by direct mechanisms that we know about. So we know that PTSD and, and depression 
cause low T. And that TBI causes mixed results in terms of studies. Some people's T rebounds, some don't. The studies are very mixed. But the pituitary hangs in the brain on a stalk, and it's a mobile stalk. And that stalk gets compressed and sheared in a TBI. And shearing and compression, particularly compression of the pituitary stalk, is known to cause prolactin elevation. Mm. Prolactin is what suppresses testosterone. So if your prolactin is up, your T is down. And so that's a very known mechanism that TBI could and does affect um, testosterone, as well as that estrogenic protection we talked about where T converts to E to protect the brain. That astroglial protection that estradiol can bring will over cause over-aromatization in TBI, which lowers the T. So there's some very well-known and very direct mechanisms that T goes down in TBI. Wow. Yeah. Now, another number that we've heard is as many as 20% of soldiers have PTSD. I mean, that's a massive number. It is. Talk to me about what PTSD really is and maybe even some of the pathophysiology if, if you can jump into it. Sure, so um, I think in the big picture, we think about a trauma that's unable to be digested and processed and released. And so trauma getting stuck in the brain and in the body is really what PTSD what, what is. What does that mean? How does, some, how does so trauma get stuck there? Imagine like if you, so think about if you had a death in a family mm -hmm. and you were just really unable to process that death because it was too important and too traumatic and too difficult. If you didn't come to terms with the fact that that person had died and that's a natural progression of life and you were unable to deal with those emotions, don't you believe that you would be in a state probably for the rest of your life that you weren't able to heal and be healthy because you didn't process 100%, that? 100%. I've seen it. I've seen it go the right way. I've seen it go the right. wrong way. I know someone right now that's in it. And it is, I keep on, my sister-in-law's in it right now. Her mm -hmm. brother unfortunately passed away at the age of 30 years old oh, in gosh. his sleep, no prior health problems. Yeah. And I said, look, you've had two months, three months, you've got to figure out how to process it so you can get through it. And that's why the mental health component, the behavioral health component is so important because if you do not process emotional mental stress, it does begin to create a wedge. And the amount of inflammation, the assimilation of memories, the creation of depression, all of those things sort of are in this interplay that's not understood and not well known. But as a behavioral health clinician, I've seen it time and time again, and it's literally the trauma just getting stuck. That's not scientific to say, but we don't know exactly what happens, but it's not processed. And until it's fully processed and able to be released, it's kind of like an echo bouncing around on a cave wall, mm -hmm. and it does a lot of damage. The moment you go through something traumatic, the the emotions that you have consistently kind of create the self-defeating negative feedback cycle mm -hmm. you're thinking about it over and mm -hmm. over and over again, which is your equivalent of bouncing back and mm -hmm. forth in your head. Normally, you come to grasp with that and let it go. Right. That's your equivalent of the release. Right. But in a, some percentage of people, you can't break out of that feedback mm -hmm. loop. And it's just constant over and over and yep. over and over again. And that's and why getting our vets plugged into to mental health care that's meaningful and that has a behavioral, cognitive behavioral therapy component is so important because that's what the behavioral therapy does. It works, it works the kinks out of that muscle that's just tight and won't release. Yes, yeah, I can. And it's so interesting because I can even, this is a horrible example, but one that I think a lot of people that can relate to 
is if I get into an argument with my fiance or if I, there's something I want to say to her mm -hmm. and, and I know I won't step on that bomb because <laughs> if I do, you got to uh, dance around it. I got to, I got to <laughs> dance around it. My life becomes a lot harder. But if I hold on to that one mm -hmm. thing I need to say for too long, mm -hmm. it actually creates real yeah. changes in my body rather than just saying it, getting well put. it out. Yes, well put. And you're in tune with your body. You're a healthy guy. You're doing this work. You're doing so much learning. And you notice those changes. Imagine being in a place where you don't know if you're going to live or die. Mm. How would you even pay mm. attention to something like that? I, and you come home and all of this is, is in there and is creating emotional, mental trauma and all of the damage downward effects that that relates to in terms of health, which begins with inflammation, but is not only related to that, because the mental health is so keenly tied to physical health that we don't even fully understand it. Um, and so it's impossible to imagine not getting help for PTSD and being able to be well. Because the, you know, the diagnostic criteria for PTSD in the DSM-5 is quite robust. Mm -hmm. It's very detailed. It's above and beyond the conversation here. But it would require a full psychological or psychiatric evaluation, multiple interviews with the interviewer, and criteria to be met. But generally speaking, if you're reliving a trauma, if you're hypervigilant and jumping at any sound, if you're having trouble sleeping, you're starting to get depressed, and you're avoiding any reminder of that trauma, a sight, a smell, or a sound that could take you back there, nightmares, of course, are a big part of that as well. But if you're in a situation like that, and it's related to something that's happened traumatically to you or someone else, you need to be evaluated for PTSD. That's, you know, but you know what I think it's the scary thing for a lot of men is when we use language like evaluated for PTSD, I think that makes it almost feel like something's wrong with us to a right, certain degree. Right. When it's like, hey, I don't want to admit something's wrong with mm -hmm. me. There is something wrong with me, but I almost don't want to admit it necessarily. Yeah. I, I would say, you know, you've talked to probably thousands of men, tens of mm -hmm. thousands of men. How do you think we talk to them to feel comfortable about therapy? Because I will tell you this, right? I've got an executive coach and I've got a therapist. Mm -hmm. God bless. Because yeah. if I didn't have the both of them, I would probably be all up in my head even more than I probably am yeah. right now. Yeah. And so there's a there's some sort of bridging process. Spouses help with this as well. But I think the concrete discussion with a medical provider that says, here are the physiological effects. Like when I look at certain labs involving testosterone for my patients, when they're soldiers, they not only have typically low T, often inflamed livers, often elevated estradiol, but they have other things that I can look at as a concrete lab result if I'm able to test it at that time and show it to them and say, mm. this is the thumbprint of endocrine disruption and toxic exposure. If you're experiencing these sorts of things and we're seeing it in the labs, this is beyond some woo-woo psychological topic that you're not willing to go into because it's not concrete enough. Um, and this is a physiologic response. We didn't used to understand these things and now we do. So it's just catching people up to speed. Because all that, all those walls typically dissolve when you can show proof that it's a medical issue to the brain. It kind of clicks into place. Oh, that makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Right? Because then in that in that way, it becomes this hard, ambiguous, nebulous thing to get your mind around mm -hmm. that you don't necessarily even know how to peel back to, oh, look at the concrete numbers. Mm -hmm. And that makes sense because yep. if I were to figure out how to get this fixed, a lot of these other things we get fixed as well too. And you're just yep. telling me I need to sneeze, sleep a little bit more and yep. talk about my- Maybe talk to a therapist, maybe even take a med for PTSD. 
And the cognitive behavioral therapy process for people to kind of go through treatment for trauma is very concrete. Mm -hmm. It's not just talking to some therapist about how you feel. It's particular exercises you do and you do them daily. And so the therapy techniques are very concrete. So as it turns out, it, they typically do um, appeal mm -hmm. to to even servicemen that didn't want to get it so done. So these are not things like, tell me how your father treated you when you were young. These are like very well-known exercises that you go through that are probably not going down to that level necessarily. I mean, you know, most there are. The process of having PTSD is all, also knowing that not everyone gets it in the same experience. So 15 to 30% of people exposed to traumatic experiences in the military service would come out with PTSD. And so one person can have the same experience as another and not get it. So pre-existing pre processes through birth, through fetal development, through childhood, through childhood trauma, all these things kind of prepare and set the stage for, prime the pump, so to speak for PTSD. So getting into childhood may be important in some sort of esoteric way because of knowing that this set you up to have been in a different space, you know, neurologically, um, maybe even neurophysiologically, but, but also psychologically to be at risk for this. And so some of that's part of it. And if even just to say that there's nothing wrong with you. Just because your friend in service right beside you didn't have the same outcome of PTSD doesn't mean that you're broken. There's nothing wrong with you. Everybody's life experiences and in utero development matter in terms of these things. That's so important. I mm -hmm. think a lot of people think that, hey, if my friend didn't have that, I shouldn't have that. Right. But what people don't realize is you are so incredibly complex and yes. individual in your own right. And the thing that's going to work for you is going to be dramatically different mm -hmm. than the person next to you or even your brother or yep. your spouse for that matter. Absolutely. There's a, there was an interesting study I read a long time ago about chronic pain. And there was um, an ortho unit in a hospital, pretty high number of patients that was able to look at um, functional imaging of the brain and the greater white matter ratio accurately predicted who would have a chronic pain transition from an acute orthopedic injury. And this sort of thing where just the way the brain itself was mapped mattered in predicting who at high likelihood would have chronic pain, I think applies in this sort of situation that the brain is at risk in certain people and we will do a better job. In the future, these sorts of things will be known. And we will say to our veterans, hopefully, you are at higher risk because we will have that technology. Well, you know, I think we're right at the cusp of that. And, mm -hmm. I, and I, what I mean by that is, right, you know, I've been looking at 300 biomarkers every 90 days. I just did a pre nuvo scan. I've been looking at all of my different physiological functions using my whoop, my aura ring, mm -hmm. my eight sleep. And I think that the rest of the world is catching up we because yeah. in just the past year, just the past year, longevity and functional medicine are arguably some of the biggest topics because mm -hmm. we've looked at our friends and our parents that have been through really crappy circumstances. Mm -hmm. And we've said, no, no, not us anymore. We're not doing this yet. And so I think five years, I think the military starts catching up with a lot Agreed. of this stuff. And five years sounds like a long time, but really it's the snap of mm -hmm. a finger. And that it's would not. actually be fast, I would mm -hmm. argue. And I think veterans working with companies like yours will have the information and the fuel to push and to push. And on a national stage, you know, social media and national coverage of things like this is bigger than it's ever been. So I think the future is brighter than we think. That is, I, I couldn't agree more. I actually feel like we're in a really positive place in terms of where we were, like I said, even five years ago. Agreed. I want to touch on one other thing, sleep. 
you've talked about how important sleep is right. and that when you go to sleep, it, it serves a lot of restorative functions for the mm -hmm. body. Absolutely. It is well known that 60% of soldiers sleep less than six hours a night. What does that do to your body? Well, not only do you not have time to do your rest and digest healing functions, but inflammation goes up and T production goes down. So you make testosterone and many of your hormones at night and in particular during REM cycles. And so every eight hour block of sleep, which is what the average human needs, um, is about five REM cycles of T production. So hormone health is drastically affected by lack of sleep. Inflammation, inability for the immune system to repair, um, inability for the immune system to fight offending agents. So they've studied the amount of sleep prior to vaccine um, response. And so people don't have the same mounting of immune response if they don't sleep the night before a vaccine. I mean, it's a really important thing to sleep and to know that all of the processes have been able to hit the reset button. Also, the assimilation of memory, the ability for mental health to cope with stressors. Sleep is how we make sense of things by dreaming and by storing certain places in short term, certain ideas and concepts in short term versus long term memory and how we deal with stress. Talk to me about, you said we go through five REM cycles per night, and each of those correspond to a separate release of testosterone? Men make tea during REM cycles in particular, and also in the REM cycles in the early morning hours, even more in particular. So think about what a person who doesn't sleep, like a soldier, what do they do? They may go to bed a little earlier, be more on the earth cycle where sunset and wake up with sunrise, but they're not sleeping eight to nine hours. They're sleeping four to five hours, six hours. And so the average amount of sleep is too low, but also the morning sleep is what's being lost. So they're sleeping in the nighttime, but they're waking up too early. So they're missing those early REM cycles that are also, you know, men make their tea in the morning. Having an early morning spontaneous erection is a sign of normal production of testosterone, high levels of testosterone. And that's why those morning erections are there spontaneously in people with healthy testosterone levels, because the tea production is ramped up and that tea responsiveness and the body is there more in the morning. Is it then a true statement that every time you have a spontaneous erection at night, that's when your body's producing testosterone or is that going too far? It's probably going too far to say every spontaneous erection is a pulse because, you know, there's a lot of paralytic room sleep and the body having natural response through certain activities, um, through the stages of sleep themselves. But generally speaking, that morning tea is related to production directly. And so what is there a scientific reason or that we understand yet why the earlier in the morning sleep cycles are better for our tea? Well, we make almost all of our hormones. We get ready for the most stressful thing that we're going to do, which is wake up. Hmm. And so the cortisol is the highest in the morning. The tea is up in the morning. All the things that are anti-inflammatory and support the rest and digest function that has to be in full gear to change from being paralyzed and asleep to being awake and most of us hit the ground and go. So it is the most stressful thing you do all day, unless you're a soldier, of course. <laughs> Get up and, and, you know, that's when most cardiovascular events happen. It's morning blood pressure is, is a very important reading for people that have high blood pressure. I never, I think you just made a light bulb go off in my understanding of the way the body works, which is we're laying down, mm -hmm. nothing is happening. Yeah. We're at the most still time of our entire day and our body is saying, okay, 
let's start pushing a bunch of the, these different hormones mm -hmm. into production or even into stores. Mm -hmm. So the moment you wake up, which is, as you said, stressful, mm -hmm. then we can start using them up. Yep. Oh, that's, that's fascinating. And if I'm putting all the pieces together, everything from entering the military, going through basic training, being in combat, mm -hmm. and even coming back into the real world, all very stressful very much. for soldiers. Mm -hmm. And very little relief from the stress and very little talking about what the stress is doing, how it's being created, acknowledging that it's there and that the way that they're feeling and maybe will feel is normal. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it's not okay to ignore it. Well, listen, I think Dr. Jandis, you have been unbelievably amazing. And I think all Thank the you. veterans in our community that are hearing this would think that finally there is someone that is saying all the things that we've been trying to tell the rest of the world. And I wish we, they, we had known this at the beginning. And I think that you should feel incredibly proud of the fact oh. that you were leading this charge. Thank you. Well, I'd like to thank all the men and women in service for their service and for what they've done. Um, an incredibly important and brave thing that every time I see a veteran, I thank them for their service. Sometimes they think I'm crazy, but I just thank <laughs> them no matter where they are because I'm deeply grateful from the bottom of my heart because regardless of any political agenda or reason for a person to be sent to do something, they did what they did in order to help the world be a better place, I believe, and democracy to thrive. So I'm entirely grateful and want to do anything I can do to be helpful. That's It's a hell of a message. I'm going to end this on one last thing. You're a very healthy person. You take care of yourself. What are your What are your three non-negotiables? And I know sleep's mm -hmm. going to be one of them. It is, and I, I miss the mark on it with young kids and a practice more often than I'd like. But um, water, sleep and movement. So, and I, and it's a mixture of movement. It's not just, I have to do cardio or I have to do this or that. It's strength training and it's things that are not punishing to my body and are rejuvenating to mind and body. So I don't do things on the regular basis, on a regular basis that punish my body in terms of exercise. Because we're, we preach movement, we preach exercise, and it's very inflammatory and it's often very stressful. And so I try to in, instill that in my patients and my family that stay moving most important thing you can ever do is walk yep walk every day that's it just, just walk out. longevity is directly related to that particular movement jogging's not a bad thing but not everybody's body's meant for it mm -hmm. and it will erode your joints over time and so walk love your family lower your stress that's it stay mindful stay present that's it if you can't control it don't stress over it Hold on, how important is that? And I wish more people realize you can't control it, just let it go. It's just, not even worth thinking about. And we we have been taught, you know, I'm a, I'm a woman that grew up in the South, and so it's all about, you know, worrying, and I've just worried, and it, what good does it do? <laughs> what good does it do? I mean, I'm not gonna worry if I can't fix it, and I, that's a big statement from someone who's a mom. So, yeah, and I've, I'm a parent of a child with autism as well. So I've had to learn through personal experience. It's one of the reasons I'm on a functional medicine journey for myself, my family, my patients is for him. And I, I can't control it. I'm not going to stress over it. I'm going to just let it be and be mindful and be grateful. And for the vets out there listening, gratitude journaling and gratitude statements help rewire the, the brain in a more rapid succession than a lot of things. 
Write your gratitude statements, write in your journal, and take your fish oil. It's a systemic anti-inflammatory. Two grams a day split in one gram doses after meals. I preach it to my patients. It's one of the most important things other than supporting your detox. I'm actually going to second you on both those things you said. And we've talked about this so many times in this podcast. Gratitude journaling is yes. arguably one of the single best things you can do for yourself because it teaches your brain how to be appreciative of every goddamn thing mm-hmm. in your life. I think people search for happiness all the time when the reality is happiness is literally yeah. right here. And no, it's internal. Yep. The world will never stop being stressful or in its own way chaotic and crazy, but the inner to domain the inner terrain for mental health is what matters. So finding gratitude for what's in front of you, because no matter what's happening, you have something to be grateful for. So we're going to leave on that, that we are grateful for all of your insight, but don't stress. Don't stress. Don't stress and be happy. And be grateful. Be grateful Mm -hmm. even better. All right. Thank you. You're welcome. Hey guys, thanks for listening into this episode of Hone In. If you like this episode, please make sure to subscribe and hey, If you have a minute, drop a comment below with your biggest learning, your insights, your takeaways from this conversation. I would personally love to hear from you. Tune in each week for more answers to questions, solutions to problems, and tangible advice that you can apply to your life to live smarter, stronger, and longer. One more thing before you guys leave. This is important. The Honan Podcast is intended as general information. Our purpose is to educate, inspire, and support you as you live a healthier, longer life. The use of information on this podcast is not, and I repeat, not intended as a substitute for the advice of a physician, medical, or mental health professional. And it should not serve as diagnosis or treatment. If you are suffering from a psychological or a mental health condition, please seek help from a qualified health professional. Thank you so much for listening to us.